Well, good morning to you. If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, Lord willing, we're going to finish out uh, the uh, the fifth chapter of uh, the book of uh, um, the book of Luke. Um, so, Luke chapter five, Luke chapter five, and we're going to look at uh, verses thirty-three through uh, thirty-nine. Luke chapter five, verses thirty-three through thirty-nine. Luke chapter five, verse thirty-three through thirty-nine. When you found that place, I do want to invite you to stand one more time as we honor the reading of God's holy and written word. In Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verse 33, hear the word of the Lord that's given to you and I this morning. And then they said to him, why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise, those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And he said to them, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. And then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a, puts a piece from, the, from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear. And also the piece that was taken out from the new does not match the old. And no one puts, a new wine, puts new wine into old wineskins. Or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled. And the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. And both are preserved and no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says, the old is better. Now, let's pray. Father, as we go to your word now, we ask for grace, for your mercy, wisdom, your truth to be proclaimed clearly and evidently. Pray for your power uh, through your spirit that we would hear and receive the word that you may be glorified from us and through us and in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The central teachings of Jesus, I think, are highlighted in our passages. And that is the transformative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is very clear here that his gospel has power, that his message, the message of the kingdom, has great power. His message transcends simply mere ritual or, or tradition, and it moves forward into the arena of heart transformation, of life transformation at its very core. It is not about some works-based or merits-based religion, but it is about a religion that transforms our hearts and minds and lives through the very gospel of Jesus Christ that is that Jesus, through his work, has given himself to us through, uh, through in a way that only the Father could accept and we could be made, that we could be made holy and righteous. And so the gospel then not only confronts and eradicates our sin, but ultimately ushers us into a new life, a new lifestyle, uh, a new way of thinking, a new way of, of believing, a new way of interacting even with the world. And so before this interaction that Luke records for us, there have been several unique and eventful things that have happened, right? Remember, there have been, been, been several things that have happened. First, we've had uh, Matthew and Jesus going to the banquet. Matthew threw for Jesus and uh, invited Jesus, and Jesus was, the, uh, Jesus was the guest of honor. We've had the Pharisees asking why, the, why uh, Jesus and his disciples are just hanging out with tax collectors and thieves. We've 
We've had uh, numerous uh, uh, of, of, we've already had the previous calling of two disciples and Jesus healing of a leper and a paralyzed person. So it's been very eventful, several, several, uh, uh, several moments and events that have been listed for us. And it's interesting that as Jesus is pressed here, what we're going to find him doing is we're going to find him doing what he usually does, and that's telling a story, telling a parable, telling actually two parables to get his point across. And he's going to he's going to tell these so that we can hopefully or so that we can grasp the the better understanding of what's of what's going on. So let's look at the the underlying the underlying point here of our text, and that is the that is Jesus's revolutionary and transformative teachings that challenged the religious and established norms, and rather went to the very heart and the core of the need of mankind. So let's look first in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Look what it says here. Then they said to him, Why do you, the disciples, or I'm sorry, why do the disciples of John fast? Let me repeat this. Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise, those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. So right off the bat, we have a challenge. Um, I know some commentators think that this wasn't really a challenge, but as you look at the tone and the, the, the makeup of the text, I think you'll see very quickly that just like previously when Jesus was, uh, Jesus was being asked and his disciples were being asked, hey, why are you hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, right? Why are you doing that? That just as he was challenged at that point, he's being challenged again. They're now looking for another way to challenge his teachings, uh, th- there's some parallel passages here for us. We, we get just a little bit more information if you look up uh, in Matthew chapter nine verse fourteen, or Luke chapter two, or Mark chapter two verse eighteen. Get a little bit, get a little bit more may- maybe in those passages. Not a lot, but very similar. But but what is the context then of this challenge that's that's being give given by the Pharisees by the by uh, I, I don't know so much from the from the. Um, from the disciples of John, um, because we do find the disciples of John generally being very uh, close with the with the following of Christ, as as would be the case, right? Because John continually pointed to Christ being the Messiah, the one that he was sent to point to. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, the Pharisees they come to him and they they issue this challenge. And what is the challenge? Notice this. Here's the challenge. Here's the challenge they offer. Here's the question that they ask. It's the same question, like it's the same question if you're asking, if you're talking to a two-year-old, a four-year-old, a nine-year-old, a 13-year-old, a 20-year-old, or a 60-year-old. Here's the question that people ask the most. Here, ready for it? Here it is. It's the question of why. Ready? Why? Why? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Why? Why is this the way it is? Why are you presenting this? Why are you presenting that? And here's the question that they ask him in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. They said, right? He said, uh, why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? Why? Why? It's a big, big, bold letters. Why? 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 Why is it that you guys aren't doing what we do? Why isn't that you guys aren't quite following the traditions and the oral traditions that we do? Why is it that you're not following in what we? have set forward for you and expect you to do. It's interesting that Jesus, in everything that he does, challenges the 
the established. Now notice, I want to make this clear. Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't challenge the Old Testament law. Jesus doesn't challenge the teachings of the Old Covenant. Jesus doesn't challenge any of that. Rather, what he constantly is in, in rebuke of and is constantly challenging is the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, the priests' understanding of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. And so what Jesus is constantly doing isn't pitting himself up against the Old Covenant. He is pitting himself up against those who have, who have put themselves up and have declared themselves to be the gatekeepers. The gatekeepers, those who keep the watch over these things and those who say, we know what this is supposed to look like. And Jesus constantly is pitting himself over against the gatekeepers. Those who say to him, you can't do that. You can't do that. Why are you doing that? Why are you doing this? We've never done that before. You can't do that. How dare you think you can do this? Nobody's ever told us to do it this way before. And so Jesus constantly is pitting himself up against the religious establishment who thinks they know. And if they would have just let the Old Testament speak and the Old Covenant speak as God wrote it, they would have understood that much of what they understood was just wrong. And I'll show you this here in just a moment. Because it's not wrong to ask a legitimate question. As a matter of fact, we see many times where people ask Jesus a legitimate question. But this isn't a legitimate question. So God isn't chafed because you ask a legitimate question. As a matter of fact, Job isn't even rebuked for asking God, I don't, or saying, God, I don't understand. God, why? It's not until Job actually begins to make some rather um, <clears throat> insulting accusations against God that God then descends and says, oh yeah, Job? Well, where were you? And so there's not, there, there, God doesn't rebuke Job for why. God doesn't ask. God doesn't rebuke us for asking the question why. It's the motivation behind the question that matters. Why? Why? So if you're asking a legitimate question, if you're saying, God, I simply don't understand something, why? Because the thing you have to remember is as we move forward through the Gospel of Luke, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the priests have already been set up as, an, as the antagonists against Jesus and we'll see as we go through the Gospel of Luke how this continues to build upon itself and build upon itself and build upon itself until ultimately they take counsel how to kill him and then they find a way to betray him and to kill him. So Jesus is never, never going to get on us for asking the legitimate question. But this wasn't a legitimate question. This was an accusation that was clothed with a question. It's like asking someone, when did you quit beating your wife? It's a no-win question. If you say, I never beat my wife, aha, well, at least you thought about it, right? Or if you say, well, 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 ah, so when was the last time you beat your wife? You, you can't win with a question like that. And that's what, that's what they get you with. That's what the question is meant to do, to entrap Jesus. The question is to entrap him. And so they say, well, why? Hmm. It's an accusation cloaked in a question. And so the question that was asked here is very similar to a question that was asked in the very beginning. And notice this. So you have the Son of God, the Son of Man, right, which is Jesus' favorite title for himself, the Son of Man. 
Um, the, son, the Son of God, the Son of Man, Jesus the Christ, the second Adam, the last Adam here. And who is it that we have, we have these religious people asking him the question of why? Which is very similar to a question that was asked in the very beginning, right? You say, well, what, what do you mean? Well, if you go back to the garden, right, there was another creature that asked God, that asked Adam the same question. Why has God kept that fruit from you? Why has God said not to eat that fruit? Why? It wasn't a question, it was an accusation that went against the very character and nature of God, that God was keeping something from you, Adam and Eve. And so they ate and partook. And so the serpent here is represented by the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, 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 the religious elites, the priests, who think they know how it's all supposed to work out and look. And so they come like the serpent, cloaking, cloaking an accusation in a question. And here's the question. Jesus, why is it that we fast and fast often? John, I mean, John's disciples even do the same. But you and your disciples, well, you guys don't fast that very much. Well, generally, right? Generally, we're not called to we're not called to judge ourselves by another person's piety, by another person's religious devotion, right? We're not here to, we're not, I'm not here to, to stack myself up against you or you're not here to stack yourself up against me and say, well, how am I doing here compared to so-and-so and such-and-such? That's never the question. And I'm never, to, I'm never to stack your religious piety unless you're just absolutely sinning and, 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 and disobeying God's word. Right? That becomes a whole other story. But I'm not to stack up my, my lifestyle against your lifestyle and say, well, you're not quite cutting it. You see, the only question that we have to ask is, what has God said and what does God command? What has God said and what does God command? And if I go beyond and above that, well, then good. If I do not, then fine, but I have fulfilled the commands that God has given. Why do I bring this up? Do you know that out of all of the New Testament and out of all the Old Testament, fasting is not commanded but one time? Once, that's it. You say, well, well now wait a minute. The Pharisees fasted and, and Jesus fasted and the disciples fasted. And all these people were fasting and praying, to which I would say yes, but you know there was only one time when it was commanded, and that was on the Day of Atonement. You know, if you, you can look throughout the entire New Testament and Jesus never commands us to fast. Never once. Now, he does make the assumption that we will fast. He will make the assumption that we will fast because he says here, Right? That when the bridegroom is taken away, that there will come a day when they will fast. Right? So, so Jesus will tell us that there, right, he, there is some expectation that, that we will fast. But the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the priests and all these people were like, well, why aren't you as religious as we are? To the, to the question is, why are you doing what you're doing? Right? Do, they, do you even know why you do what you do? And the question I think for us should be asked on the same level. Do you know why you do what you do? Do you know why you come together with God's people on a Sabbath, on a Lord's Day, right? Uh, on the Lord's Day, the, some of the older, older uh, theologians would call it the Lord's Sabbath, right? The, the Sunday, but, but the Lord's Day I think is sufficient enough for us. 
Why do we come together on the Lord's Day? Why do, we, why do we worship together on the Lord's Day? Why do we sing? Why do we do what we do? Why do we give? Why do we offer our tithes and our offerings? Why is it that we sing? Why is it that we, that we sacrifice for one another and should love one another? Why is it that we do what we do? Well, there's reasons behind it. And it's not just because. But do you know why you do what you do? Do I know why we do what we do? Whether, whether we're talking about corporately as a congregation or individually, or as families, do we know why we do what we do? In the Old Testament, fasting was seen as and signified usually by mourning and repentance and prayer. Again, only Leviticus was it ever commanded on the Day of Atonement. But it was it was a it was a way even in this time in which in which people were to abstain from food and drink and could bring together through, through personal and national the larger Jewish community and worship God through fasting. And then they broke the fast through a feast. And there were other fasts throughout the Old Testament, but again, none of them were ever commanded. So for instance, you have several different fasts in the Old Testament that we find examples of, again, not commanded, but find examples of. We find David fasting for his ill son in 2 Samuel 12, 16-23. We find the people of Nineveh fasting after Jonah preaches to them in Jonah 3, 4 through 10. We find Esther fasting before she approaches the king in Esther 4, 16. And again, there are, there are other fasts that we could go through. But I will say this, Israel thought because of their religious activity, now notice this, they thought because of their religious activity that God was pleased with them. And yet when we go to the pages of Isaiah and the prophets, what is it that Isaiah and the prophets continually say to them? God doesn't care about how much you're doing what you're doing. He cares about the heart behind it. And he actually says at one point, away with your new moons, away with your Sabbaths, away with your fastings. Because they were offering these religious activities without heart, without the passion of love for God and love for who he is. And truthfully, this was the Pharisees and the, the, the scribes and the priests and the religious elite's problem at this point. They were stacking law upon law upon law, and God never said to do any of it. They were stacking this up on people, and they were saying, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, when if they would have ever just stopped and said, well, has God ever said this? They, they would have come back with a resounding, Nope, not in the very least. And again, that doesn't mean that there aren't other examples. Jesus fasted, as I said, in Mark or Matthew 4, 2. Or we find the, the church in Acts, we do find places where they're fasting. But, but fasting in the New Testament, as we see examples of it, is, is seen as, a, as, as, as associated with prayer. It's always associated with prayer. It's all, prayer and fasting are always coming together. I mean, you even have the passage in, uh, in, the, in the Gospels where Jesus comes down the mountain and he says, you know, or the disciples say, why couldn't we cast this, this demon out of this young boy? And he says, well, this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. Um, and, and so you have, uh, of course, I know there's a, there's a textual variant there, but, but at, the, at the same time, I, I think these are interesting points. These are interesting points to contemplate and to think through. 
Because they were coming to the one who wrote the law and saying, why aren't you doing this? And the one who wrote the law says, well, well then why are, you, why are you doing any of this? They're coming to the one who wrote the book, who wrote the books, who inspired the books, right? The one who, who, the one who, who, who had safeguarded the writing through the Holy Spirit through the, through the books, the very lawgiver <laughs> upon the mountain of God, the very lawgiver who had given the law, and they're coming to him and saying, how dare you not keep our interpretation of your law? To which Jesus said, I didn't tell you to do any of it. So if we do it, and I, I would say we should, if we do fast, let us do it. Let us do it with humility and prayerfulness, repentance, and seeking the guidance of, of the Lord and all of it, and not looking at somebody else who doesn't maybe fast and saying, ah, what a heathen, what a no good, dirty, rotten heathen. I fast, they don't, well, God's got to love me more. That's the heart of the Pharisee, not the heart of the follower of Christ. And so Jesus begins to use this imagery. And it's funny because um, I, I said two, three actually, three different images that, imageries that Jesus is going to use here. The first that he's going to use is that of the bridegroom. And he's going to do something very interesting here in, Matthew, or in, yeah, in Luke chapter 5. <clears throat> what does he say here? In verse 34, he says, And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. So why is it that Jesus moves to the, moves to the bridegroom? Well, he does so for a couple different reasons. Let me point out the main reason. Because in doing this, Jesus is fully and boldly declaring himself to be the long-awaited bridegroom that Isaiah had prophesied of. This was a messianic claim, period. And the Jews knew this. As soon as Jesus called himself the bridegroom and applied the imagery of the bridegroom out of Isaiah to himself, this imagery that was given not only from Isaiah but even from Hosea and applied it directly to himself and the one who is talking about he is by, by implication and the one who has set this lavish banquet of the Lord that has been provided, the one that has been promised. Let me quote to you two places here where the, the Jews would have clearly understood this, particularly the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the priests. Isaiah 25, 6-9, this is what the prophet Isaiah says, And in this mountain the Lord of hosts will make, make for all of his people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the leaves. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken and it will be in that day, behold, this is our God, we have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Isaiah here presents, presents the Messiah who is coming as the bridegroom who makes a feast for God's people, who sets the table and feasts and causes them to feast from it, something that is very clear from Revelation chapter 19 as well. And again, in Isaiah 62, 4 and 5, it says, Isaiah also says, But you shall no longer 
be termed forsaken, nor shall your land any more be termed desolate, but you shall be called Hazapah, and your land Beulah, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God is pictured here in Isaiah 60. Uh, Isaiah 62 as being the bridegroom who rejoices and marries his people. And so this isn't, this isn't some kind of veiled illusion here. This is a very prominent, clearly bold imagery that Jesus is saying, I am this bridegroom that Isaiah told you about. I am the bridegroom that Hosea promised to come. And so Jesus is using authoritative information here. And in doing that, what is he saying? Well, why don't we fast? Well, the reason we don't fast is because I'm here. And it would be very inappropriate for us who are recipients of uh, the disciples of Jesus, we who are recipients of the bridegroom's presence, it would be wrong for them to fast when it's a time of rejoicing and joy and feasting. Because Jesus says, I am the long-awaited bridegroom. I am the long-awaited one that have been, you have been hearing about from the beginning. I am the one who has come. And as a result, what have I come to do? Well, Jesus in telling them and applying this bridegroom to them, he is telling them, to himself, he is telling them a couple of things. One, it is an end of an era of mourning. God's people have been mourning and praying and pleading for God to send Messiah. And Jesus, by saying, I am the bridegroom who has now come, and showing and applying this to himself, he's now saying, I've come, stop mourning, it is enough. Rejoice in grace and joy in peace. Do not mourn, but rather feast and be glad and sing for joy. And it's also a fulfillment of the messianic expectation that Jesus as the bridegroom fulfills the long-awaited hopes of all that Israel had hoped, the covenant that had promised everything that he, had, that he was to do. Jesus fulfills all of this but, but let, me, let me make a statement, as, and if I've not been clear enough, I want to be clear here. I've heard pastors take this passage and preach on fasting. Well, my goodness, that is not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is, is feast or fasting is secondary. But with that in mind, let me say this. Jesus clearly never rejects fasting, and so if you want to fast, fast. Jesus also does allude to his disciples fasting after his being taken away. Here in the text, that's what he says. The bridegroom, you know, you can't fast while the bridegroom's with them, right? But there's coming a day when he will be taken away. So we have several other occasions. Saul or Paul, right, fasted after his conversion in Acts 9, 8 to 11. They, the church was fasting there in, uh, in Acts 13, verses 1 through 3, as they were setting apart missionaries. And then again, the we find a church, a, a particular church, fasting as they're setting aside and laying hands on elders, as they're, they're equipping new elders and calling new elders, their new pastors, and to be, to be a part of this. So what is Jesus saying then in all of this? Well, he goes on. We don't have to guess because he goes on. He goes on and he actually starts talking about wineskins and wine and garments and unshrunk garments. And he starts talking about all of this, right? Let me say this. There are three main interpretations of this passage. I bet you didn't know that. But there are three main interpretations of this passage. 
The first, in the first interpretation of this passage, what Jesus is saying is, he is introducing a new covenant as compared to the old covenant, right? This has mainly been the main thought throughout Throughout history, this has been what most people have concluded. Jesus is saying here, even the, the early church fathers, I think this was their main contention. Then you have another group who talk about this is contrasting true faith versus false Jewish ritualistic religion and tradition. So brothers like John MacArthur and some of the others take this position. And then there is that simply this. <clears throat> Jesus is indeed contrasting true faith and ritual and tr- tradition but rather, Jesus is using scribes and the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the priests as being the quote-unquote new because they've added to God's law. And if you really want to know my opinion, it is that I believe that in keeping with Luke's narrative, Jesus is never presenting as doing anything quote-unquote new. Nothing Jesus does is new. Everything Jesus does is in fulfillment to the old covenant to usher in, yes, the new covenant, but the new covenant is but an expression and fulfillment of the old covenant. And so I do believe that Jesus is not calling the scribes and the Pharisees the old wineskins. He is calling God's word, God's law, being that which was given from the beginning. And these new scribes and Pharisees and what they've been putting on other people to be the new unshrunk, that which does not fit, that which cannot fit, that which ultimately will cause the skins to burst and the garments to tear even worse because they have absolutely no thought in their brain for what God asks. Instead, they continue to add on their laws. Now, you can disagree, and that's fine. Many, many great others have, and this is actually a minority view. But I think as you look at the Gospel of Luke and you look at the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus is never presented as doing anything, quote-unquote, new. Jesus does everything in fulfillment to the law. He does everything in fulfillment with the Word of God. Jesus does everything in fulfillment. But regardless of whatever, whatever you, you take, I think there's some things here that do need to be brought forward, whatever interpretation you take. I think there are, there are clearly some, some things that we need, to, we need to understand and better, better understand about what Jesus is saying. First, I, I think we need to better understand that we as God's people are called to rejoice in Christ and to follow Christ. We're called to, to follow Him and to match His righteousness or His, His standard of living, not ours and not those that we would add to Him. We need to understand that we who are in Christ are called to to honor Him in all that we do and all that we say. We're not called to add on somehow thinking that we're more righteous because we add stuff on and continually keep adding stuff on and continually adding our interpretation to those things and say, oh, well, see, there you go. To be righteous, to be good, to be in our best liking, you've got to, you've got to follow our rules. You know, I was, I was studying, I, I actually ran across or rem, was reminded of a very funny story, I thought, um, that I had heard many years ago. There was a man in New York City several years ago who called down to his concierge and he said to the concierge, hey, call me a taxi. Um, I'm going to be leaving in the next few minutes for an important meeting. He said, I'm going to, I'm going to and he, called, he named off the, the place where he was going and the meeting and the time and that he needed to be there. Well, thinking that the concierge had told the taxi driver the, that the same information, he gets down, hops in, and the taxi driver starts to say where to, and the guy says, go and go fast. 
And so the taxi driver takes off and he starts going fast. Well, after a few minutes, the guy, the, the guy looks around and he's like, I should have, he looks at his watch and says, I should have been there by now. And he asks the taxi driver, says, hey, buddy, do you know where you're going? He said, nope, but I sure am going fast. Now, what's my point in telling you that story? My point in my story is that that's us sometimes. Sometimes we can, we can get so caught up in doing, doing what we think is right or our, what our tradition has said that is right that we never stop to ask the question, why are we doing this? Why do we think this? Why are we contemplating this? Why do we structure it this way? And instead of never asking the question, we can say, well, man, I know where we're going, but we sure are going there fast. The reality is, is we need to know not only our destination, but we need to go there in accordance with God's word. Because the gospel is, the, the, the nature of the gospel is, is radical. And when Jesus says that he is the bridegroom, what he is saying is he has come to fulfill. And he has come, he has come to fulfill and to be for the fulfillment of the promised Messiah who ushers in the kingdom of God, who brings in the, the power of God among the nations. He is the one who provides a new way and a new and living way. He is the one who has come to fulfill the great promise of God to redeem his people. He is the one who has died upon the cross and raised on the third day. He is the one who lived the life that we could not live he is the one who sinned, never sinned. We are the ones who sin. He never sinned. We are the ones who fail. He has never fail, failed or fallen. He, we are the ones who can't keep our promises. He has kept every promise. And on dying on the cross and raising again on the third day, he calls sinners to himself through faith in Christ. And he says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says to the sinner, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for it is light. Notice that. He says, take my yoke upon you, for it is light. And so Jesus is the one who beckons sinners to come to faith in Christ. Jesus is the one who beckons sinners to, to repent of their sins, to turn away from their sins and come to him in faith. Jesus is the one who says, I have every right and I have the capability and I have the ability to do this. I have the right and the capability and the ability to do this. It's interesting that um, I, I know that probably most of you are not fans of um, the Lord of the Rings, but I, I do think that it isn't, there's, an interesting, there's an interesting part. If you've ever read the Lord of the Rings, the trilogy, um, just just to be honest with you, whether you've seen it or whether you've read the book, there's a there's a there's a part of the book in the Return of the King in the very last book, J.R.R. Tolkien writes about um, a man who was the steward uh, of of Gondor, which was the, awaiting the return of the king, but he had forgotten his place and he'd forgotten that he was the steward of Gondor and he was not the king of Gondor. And he was to make sure and be prepared so that when the king returned, the king would be ushered in with, with, with joy and shouting and feasting. And, and yet the guardian, the, the, the steward of Gondor, Denethor, had forgotten this. 
he had forgotten this and he begins to, to abuse his power and he begins to override his, the authority that was given to him and begins to put things in place that he shouldn't have put into place. And he begins to underestimate the threats that are coming against Gondor so much so that he fails to see what's, what, what's going on in his own heart, that his own heart is turned away from the king and turned away from being a steward of Gondor and instead serves his own wicked purposes. So what's my point? My point is if we're not careful, brothers and sisters, our own hearts can turn against us and away from the king who is the rightful king of kings and lord of lords, the one who is the son of man and the bridegroom. Our hearts can quickly turn cold and bitter against this king. And instead of serving the king and instead of honoring the king and instead of instead of being simply stewards of the king, we try to become the king. And do whatever we want. And put into place whatever we want. Never asking the question, what does God's word say? What is God commanded here? What is the king said? What are the king's orders? And so my question for you, believer, this morning is this. If that is you this morning, if you find your place where your heart has become cold and bitter against the rightful king... Are you willing to repent and to give and to give the reins, to let go of the reins and let the rightful king lead you? Are you willing to recognize that you don't have the authority over your own life? And rather do you repent and turn those reins back to the king and say, Lord, I have been trying to do this for far too long and I have made an absolute wreck and mess of my life in trying to do this. Or maybe I'm going and heading toward a wreck and a mess. God, I have completely and utterly, I completely and utterly, as much as you grant me the grace, repent and I give it to you because you have all authority, you have all power, you have all might, you are the rightful king, I am not, so Lord, lead me. Are you willing to give up what authority you think you have for the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth and who is the savior of all who come to him in grace will save them? We may all come to the Lord at different places, but the response is called to be that of rejoicing and receiving. Is this your day of response, believer? And I'll ask you this, more importantly, unbeliever, is this the day that God has called you to respond? The answer to that is undoubtedly yes. If you don't know Christ, the the invitation is extended. Come to Christ. May we call one another friends that we may rejoice in the king of the kingdom. So believer, let me close with these questions. Has my practice of faith become heartless? Am I all about tradition? No, tradition's good and fine, but I oppose any sort of change. Are my religious opinions so rigid that it pushes the lost away? I'm not saying the gospel. I'm not saying the gospel. I'm saying, have you become so unapproachable 
that you and I become like the Pharisees who instead of calling people to come to the kingdom, push them away from the kingdom? Do you and I love people like Jesus loved people? And more importantly, let me ask you this question. Do these things make you angry? Like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and those priests? Or do you rejoice in the grace of God that has come to us in Christ? Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help and aid now as we look to your word. As we've looked at your word, we now leave, we pray, challenged and prepared to meet the coming days and weeks and months ahead. That Christ be exalted and glorified. That God, you would be the center point of all that we do and say, not just here as we close out this year, but as we start a new year that this new year would be one of, of just gospel growth and gospel magnification, that the gospel would be clearly preached and declared inside as well as outside these walls as we make disciples. May you help us now and protect us. May you give us the aid that is necessary because we can't do it ourselves. Through your spirit, empower us in Jesus' name. Amen.